I would bid you turn with me in your scriptures to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. And we will read together the first five verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Hear now the inspired, authoritative, and inerrant word of God. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Father, we ask your blessing on this, your holy word, we ask, Father, that you will open our minds to understand. We ask, Father, you will open our hearts to receive. And we ask that you will open our lives to live that holy word of God. Be with us and bless us for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let me first uh, mention that I am very grateful to be here um, it's a privilege for me to be able to minister in your midst. It has been a long, long time. Uh, it's been many, many years since I was privileged to preach to you all, and uh, I am grateful to be here once again. I do beg your indulgence. My throat has its issues, and so I come prepared. <laughs> <clears throat> In chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul has drawn the contrast between that priceless treasure of the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, in verse 4, that light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in verse 6. He draws a contrast between those on the one hand and our frailty and vulnerability in this present veil of tears. We have this treasure, he says in verse 7, in jars of clay, earthen vessels, the King James puts it. He says in verses 8 and 9, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And he wraps up that, that comparison in verses 16 and through 18, saying, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
And then he moves into chapter 5 and our text this morning. Not only does he draw the contrast between the, price, uh, the priceless spiritual reality that we experience here and now in Jesus Christ and then the, the, the dirty, nitty-gritty unpleasantness of our day-to-day lives here below, he extends that contrast now into the future. He extends that contrast beyond the grave. And he underscores that while our miseries in this life here below have an expiration date, thanks be to God, our remarkable and glorious destiny is eternal in the heavens. So we'll be examining our text this morning using the outline that you have before you, the two main points, uh, the temporal and the eternal in verses 1 through 4, in which we have the four sub-points, the tattered tent and the enduring house in verse 1, the groaning and the longing in verse 2, the clothing in verse 3, and then clothed and further clothed in verse 4, and then the second main point, the author and the earnest in verse 5. And so we find first the temporal and the eternal in verses 1 through 4, and the first sub-point, the tattered tent and the enduring house in verse 1, where he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul sets the stage here with an absolute knowledge claim. For we know. John Calvin underscores that claim when he says, We know, says he, this knowledge does not spring from the human intellect, but takes its rise from the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Hence, it is peculiar to believers. Even the heathens had some idea of the immortality of the soul. But there was not one of them that had an assurance of it. Not one of them could boast that he spoke of a thing that was known to him. Believers alone can affirm this to whom it has been testified of by the word and the spirit of God. John Gill, agreeing with Calvin, puts it this way. For we know they are well assured of the truth of this from the promise of God who cannot lie, from the declaration of the gospel, the testimony of the spirit, and the close and inseparable connection there is between the grace that we've already received and the glory that shall be hereafter. These are not merely matters of speculation and imagination. Paul's not simply trying to comfort us with some hopeful dreams and ideas that he made up to to comfort a small child on the death of a puppy. This is not conjecture or philosophical abstracts. This is a sure and certain knowledge that we can affirm with absolute epistemic certainty precisely because God has spoken. Paul uses the metaphor of a tent to refer to our embodiment in these physical bodies. Paul was a tent maker by trade, so that figure was quite familiar to him. It's also an Old Testament figure familiar to the Jews. And it is, in a literal translation, the figure that John used in reference to Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 and verse 14, where he says that the word 
eskenosen, dwelt among us, or as Young's literal translation renders it, did tabernacle among us. As McLaren says, the first outstanding difference is the contrast between the fragile dwelling place with its thin canvas, its bending poles, its certain removal someday, and the permanence of that which is not a tent but a building which is eternal. No more fatigue, no more working beyond the measure of power, no more need for recuperation and repose, no more dread of sickness and weakness, no more possibility of decay. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption, neither can they die any more. Enough for us that the contrast between the Bedouin tent, which is folded up and carried away and nothing left but the black circle where the cheerful hearth once glinted amidst the sands of the desert, and the stately mountain, the stately mansion reared for eternity, is the contrast between the organ of the spirit in which we now dwell and that which shall be ours. That was McLaren. Now, while it's pretty clear here that our tent is referring to this house of clay, this, this body in which we live here and now, there is an exegetical question regarding the meaning of Paul's metaphor, a building, of God, a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What exactly does he mean? Calvin addresses this exegetical question here. He says, it is not certain whether he means by this term a state of blessed immortality which awaits believers after death or the incorruptible and glorious body such as it will be after the resurrection. In whichever of these senses it is taken, it will not be unsuitable, though I prefer to understand it as meaning that the blessed condition of the soul after death is the commencement of this building, and the glory of the final resurrection is the consummation of it. Now, you may have noticed that Calvin does not consider the third possibility, which some have preferred, quite a few have preferred, uh, that Paul is talking about the mansions in heaven. But... Uh, that interpretation does not really fit the language and the figure that Paul is using. The tent and the building are figures for those housings of our soul, either now or after death. They're not figures uh, of the literal houses or tents for our bodies, either now or after death, you see. And, of course, Calvin embraces both of those ideas in the sense that our blessed fellowship with Christ in the grave is the beginning of the building and that our resurrection body is the completion of the building. And I think Calvin's right on the mark here. Second subpoint is the groaning and the longing in verse 2. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Ever since the fall, the curse of sin has made this life a veil of tears. Yes, there is joy and laughter. Yes, there is sweetness and light. Yes, there is enjoyment, but oh, the darkness and the misery 
that do so mar and scar the human condition. Even in our best of days, there are dark reminders of the sin and misery that attend this fallen world. There's a clear difference between a tent and a house. I have slept in tents before, camping with the kids. You know, you fire in the woods, the smell of smoke while you're telling stories and singing songs and, uh, and, and, and exploring the wilds of nature and, and don't forget the s'mores. <clears throat> uh, for, now, for some, that's more appealing than others. And as I got older and my youngest son was not quite so captivated by the rough outdoors, <clears throat> uh, Thankfully, our campouts turned into nights camping out in the living room, watching movies all night. And I must confess, the couch was a lot more comfortable than the tent. Fact is, I don't know too many people who would choose to live in a tent when a house is available to them, at least not living there full time. For most, I think camping in a tent is, is a better experienced on a temporary, short-term basis, something more like the Feast of Tabernacles rather than a permanent living situation. And come about four o'clock in the morning, lying in a tent on the cold, hard, damp ground, when it starts to rain, I do recall some periods of longing for my soft bed <clears throat> at home. And this veil of tears is not the end of the story. And we know by God's revelation in the Bible and by the testimony of the indwelling spirit, we know that it's not the end of the story. There's something better waiting for us. In this veil of tears, not only, we not only experience the ever-increasing frailties and pains and betrayals of these physical bodies, of which I grow increasingly aware with every passing year. But we must ever wrestle with the principle of indwelling sin that mars even our holiest of moments. Thus John Gill says, But what the saints are mostly burdened with in this life, and which makes them groan the most, is the body of sin and death they carry about with them. Matthew Henry says, The body of flesh is a heavy burden. The calamities of life are a heavy load. But believers groan, being burdened with a body of sin and because of the many corruptions remaining and raging within them. Death will strip us of the clothing of flesh and all the comforts of life, as well as end all our troubles here below. But believing souls shall be clothed with garments of praise, with robes of righteousness and glory. The present graces and comforts of the Spirit are earnests of everlasting grace and comfort. To which Calvin, John Calvin adds these words, The groaning of believers, on the other hand, arises from this, that they know that they are here in a state of exile from their native land, and that they know that they are here shut up in the body as in a prison. Hence they feel this life to be a burden, 
because in it they cannot enjoy true and perfect blessedness, because they cannot escape from the bondage of sin otherwise than by death, and hence they aspire to be elsewhere. So we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Third subpoint: clothing in verse 3. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. And here Paul shifts his metaphor slightly. You notice what he's done here. It, it was a curious turn of phrase in the last verse uh, that we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. You notice that? You don't normally speak of putting on your house, do you? You don't normally speak of putting on your, your tent, do you? It's more of a clothing uh, expression than a dwelling expression, isn't it? And, and then, but then Paul follows up that curious turn of phrase here, completing the shift of the metaphor to clothing and contrasting that with nakedness. Ever since the fall, nakedness has been associated with shame. This is very clear in the scriptures. One of the tools that the Nazis would use in World War II to humiliate their captives was to strip them completely naked. That nakedness demonstrated not only their humiliation and shame, but also their defenselessness, their helplessness, their subjection. Leaving this earthly tent, departing this frail body, is something to which we have a quite natural aversion. Calvin notes that Paul admits that we have naturally an aversion to the quitting of this life, considered in itself, as no one willingly allows himself to be stripped of his garments. I don't know if you've ever had that, that dream. I'm, I'm told it's somewhat common um, in times of of intense stress, I remember during college years, that terrible dream where you know you're 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 in you're in church or something or or or, or in, in a meeting or something, and and suddenly you look down and you realize you don't have a stitch of clothes on. You're naked as a jaybird, and somehow no one notices that you're naked as a jaybird, and you just somehow you just know that. If I move, they're suddenly going to notice that I don't have any clothes on. And it's a, it's a, it's a terrible dream. It's a terrifying dream. It's a, I, don't, I don't know. Perhaps none of you have ever had that. Uh, I'm told, though, that it's not terribly uncommon in stressful times to have that kind of a dream. Uh, a nightmare. I, I never enjoyed it. And McLaren says this, he says, to dwell naked, as the apostle says in the context, is a thing from which man shudderingly recoils, and it is not to be his final fate. And Paul clarifies this in the next verse and the next subpoint, clothed and further clothed in verse 4. He says, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. See, Paul revisits the groaning in this tent from verse 2, and he expands that here in verse 4. While we are still in this tent, we groan. 
we're burdened. But we're not like the pagan Greek philosophers for whom all, you know, all physical matter is evil and pure spirit is good and they long to just be free of this physical form in favor of a disembodied spiritual existence. No, no, no. We don't just long to be rid of the tent, for that would be like being unclothed, naked. It's not, it's not life that we're despairing of, but all of the sinful and miserable accompaniments of this life that do so cling to us here in this fallen world below, like the filth of a cesspool clings to someone who's unhappily fallen in. I would tell you a story, but I don't have time. You can ask me afterwards. No, Paul says, we don't want to be unclothed, but we want to be further clothed. We do not only long for an end for this mortal life, but what we desire is, as the New American translates it, that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. This body has an expiration date. Your body has an expiration date. But you do not have an expiration date. You were created for eternity. Every human being created in God's image will last forever. Now because of sin, not every human being will live forever. Those who die in their sins without Christ will die an eternal death. They will die forever. And that should be a very sobering and terrifying truth, my friend. If you're under the sound of my voice today and you do not know Christ as your Redeemer. Richard Sibbs has rightly been called the sweetest of the Puritans. And his works are filled with warmth and comfort for believers in Christ. But when Richard Sibbs speaks of dying without Christ, his words are not sweet. They are dire. Here's what he says. Death is a terrible thing when it is armed with our sins and opens the doorway to the wrath of God. It is the end of happiness and the beginning of torment. It is a curse brought in by sin and the end of all comfort. It is a terrible thing, and nothing can conquer and master it but faith in Christ. Oh, let us labor to get in while we live, that every day we may live by faith. If you have not learned to trust God with your soul, your children, your estate, while you live, how will you trust God for your body and soul and all in death? You cannot do it. It doesn't matter if we die rich or great in the world, but only that we die in faith. Let us all labor for this faith, says Richard Sibbs. And Thomas Watson adds to that. He says, eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. And so I would implore you with all of the urgency that I can 
to come to Christ today in repentance and faith and cast yourself upon him as the only hope for your everlasting soul. Forsake your sin and come to Christ and enjoy the rich mercies of him who stands with open arms, saying, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I must tell you, in all seriousness, as kindly, yet as urgently as I can, that if you do not come to rest in him as your Savior, there will come a day when you will be pulled from this tattered tent and will face the fearful judgment of the Almighty. Talk about the trauma of nakedness. To have your very soul laid bare and naked before the all-searching eye of God himself, who will rightly and justly condemn you to an eternal death. Oh, please, oh, please, do not take to yourself that terrible fate. Not while the risen Christ invites you to come to him for mercy and forgiveness. Come to him, my friend, even now. Because for those who are believers in him, there awaits not the trauma of nakedness, but the glory of life eternal in his glorious presence. There's beginning of blessedness when this tattered tent is finally dissolved and we enjoy the sweet communion of our God as this body waits in the grave. And then there will come that glorious day of our blessed hope when the Lord returns and these physical bodies are resurrected not to corruption, like some B-rated zombie movie, but to a glorified and resurrected body like unto that of Jesus himself. Then we will see the culmination of that blessedness. Oh, what a day. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Notice what McLaren says. Take, take away the idea of resurrection. And the remaining idea of immortality is a poor, shadowy, impotent thing. There's no force in it. There's no blessedness in it. There is nothing in it for a man to lay hold of. And as a matter of fact, there is no vivid faith in a future life without belief in the resurrection and bodily existence of the perfected dead. When we know that for us individually, there is that house waiting for us to enter into it. When the Lord comes, then we shall not be unwilling to turn our hearts and our desires thither. We look at the things which are not seen, for we know that we have a house eternal. And yet such is the comfort and mercy of God that even on this side of that glorious resurrection, we may look forward to a sweet and holy communion in Christ's presence when this tent is dissolved and our bodies do sleep in him. As Calvin says, the natural horror of death is overcome by confidence as an individual will without any reluctance throw away a coarse, dirty, threadbare, and in one word, tattered garment with this view of his being arrayed in an elegant, handsome, new, and durable one. Today we may groan, today we may yearn, today we may long for what we do not yet have, but there will come a day when the groaning will be done. Hear the words of John Gill. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan. There are some of the saints who are not in the tabernacle, the body, 
They were in it, but now are not. Their bodies are in the grave, the house appointed for all living. And their souls are in the house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, in everlasting habitations, in the mansions prepared in Christ's Father's house. And they have gone, they have done groaning, being delivered from every oppressor, sin, Satan, and the world, and are at rest from all their labors, and are free from every burden. Only the saints who are in the tabernacle of the body, in an unsettled state, groan, being in the midst of tribulation, and not yet in the enjoyment of that happiness that we are wishing for. And so that brings us to our last point, and that is the second main point, the author and the earnest, in verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Here Paul assures us that God's hand has been very intentional in preparing us for that very end he has just described, that our mortal would be swallowed up in life. And there is a sense in which, as the Puritans well recognized, the trials, tribulations, and heartaches, those things that underscore and highlight our groaning in this life, they're used by God's hand to wean us from our love of this world and to foster in us our yearning for that complete glory that God has promised us. It's like McLaren says, to Paul, everything which we experience outwardly or inwardly is from the divine working. Life is to him no mere blind whirl or unintelligible play of accidental forces, nor is it the unguided result of our own or others' wills, but is the slow operation of the great workman. In other words, the highest aim of the divine love in all its dealings with us Christian men is not merely a blessed spiritual life, but the completion of our humanity in a perfect spirit dwelling in a glorified body. If we are to stand at the last with the body of our humiliation changed into a body of glory, we must begin by being changed in the spirit of our mind. As the mind is, so will the body be one day, says McLaren. And so God's given us the Holy Spirit, indwelling us as our guarantee. The New American Standard translates that as pledge. The King James translates that as earnest. Earnest is a good word. And the concept is not unlike our use of the term earnest money today. Years ago, when we bought our house, we started by signing a contract, saying basically, we'd like to buy this house. And with that contract, we were required to put down some money, some earnest money, as an indication that we were serious about wanting to buy the house. And we risked losing the money if we decided to back out of the deal. So the pledge, the guarantee, the earnest, if you will, is given to us now. We possess it even now, that portion of what is to come. 
And that portion that we have now is the assurance, the proof, that we will in fact possess the total completion of it in that day. John Gill goes so far as to say that it's the very Spirit of God within us that prompts the groanings and the longings, and that those very groanings serve as proof that we will indeed receive that for which we groan. He says these words are a reason proving that the saints have a building of God, for they know that they have it because they groan after it here. For the groanings of the saints are under the influence and direction of the Spirit of God, who makes intercession for them as for grace, so for glory, according to the will of God. Because of the fall and curse of sin, those who are in Christ are not at home in this world below. We have within a deep-seated and irrepressible longing that cannot be satisfied by the things of this world. Because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we have an awareness that our home is not here. The door through which we must pass to get to that home is painted the darkest black, and it causes the soul to naturally recoil and shrink back. Yet the Holy Spirit bears witness with us that on the other side of that black and fearsome door is the brightest light of glory. We must pass through that door. There is no other way unless the Lord returns before then. We have no promise of being spared from the stroke of death. It is appointed unto man once to die. But we have the most sure of promises witnessed by the indwelling Spirit, who serves as our earnest, our pledge, our guarantee, that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we will most certainly be spared from its sting. And on the other side of that stroke, this mortal will be swallowed up in life everlasting. And forgive me if for a moment I digress and speak of your faithful pastor, my dear friend, my dear brother, Ken Talbot, who's passed through that door and is done with death forever and experiences that light and that glory on the other side. Some of you today may have, uh, you may have heard of the Scottish Covenanter Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford was born in 1600 in the village of Nisbet. He did very well in his studies, and he became a professor of Latin in Edinburgh at an early age. In 1627, he was called to be minister at Anworth in the soft hills of Galloway, where he pastored faithfully. It was said of him that he was always praying always preaching, always visiting the sick, always catechizing, always writing and studying. Remind you of anyone? Does me. He published a book against Arminianism written in Latin that nonetheless brought him to the attention of the Anglican bishops appointed over the Church of Scotland by King Charles I. This is where you're supposed to boo, hiss. <clears throat> Those bishops were themselves Arminian, 
So in 1636, he was declared a nonconformist and was removed from his pastorate. He was sent to Aberdeen to get him out of the way. And he was barred from preaching anywhere in Scotland. And it was during this time that he wrote many of his famous letters, which are still available to us today. I commend them to you. It was said that his writing desk there in Aberdeen was perhaps the most effective and widely resounding pulpit then in old Christendom. In 1638, the Presbyterians once more gained control of the Church of Scotland and the National Covenant was signed. In that covenant, the Scots vowed to defend the Reformed faith with their life's blood, if necessary, and to keep the church free from governmental control. So now Rutherford was again free to minister. In 1639, he went to be a professor of divinity at St. Andrew's University. In 1642, England was in a civil war, waged between King Charles I, boo hiss, and his own government, the parliamentary forces ended up under the command of Oliver Cromwell, and the war raged on. Yet despite the war, the parliament was committed to the primary importance of reforming the church. And so, in the midst of a civil war, called the Westminster Assembly in 1643. And there were several Scotsmen who were invited to the assembly, and they came as a delegation representing the Church of Scotland. While they did not have a vote, they were not technically members of the assembly. They were delegates to the assembly. They were nonetheless consulted on every decision, and their counsel was given tremendous weight. And so, in that sense, they wielded more influence than if they had been members. Samuel Rutherford was appointed as one of those Scottish delegates, and he worked there tirelessly at his task until 1647, staying in England the entire time. I had two children, he wrote to a friend, and both are dead since I came hither. That was his dedication to the task of reforming the church. In 1644, he published what may perhaps be his most important book, Lex Rex, or The Law and the King, this was the most effective and definitive answer to that terrible French doctrine of the divine right of kings that was so popular with the English Stuart monarchs. That teaching was that, well, the king ruled by divine right from God alone, and thus he was answerable to no one. Divine right of kings. In Rutherford's book, he affirmed what is essentially the divine right of law over even kings. That even the king must be bound and serve under the constraints of law. The book is, is, the book is rather tedious reading, and it's filled with tightly knit logic and development, yet its principles were so powerful that it has been called the constitutional inheritance of all countries in modern times. It was this book, most of all, that got Rutherford in hot water with the authorities. Three months after the Restoration, of the Stuart monarchy in 1660, following the death of the Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell, a proclamation was issued condemning that book and ordering all copies of it to be burned. For years, it was the death penalty just to possess it, which is why a first edition is so rare and why that original first edition 
uh, in the collection of Covenant College is such a valuable treasure, and I rejoice to have held it in my hands. It was 1660 when they burned his books. In the spring of 1661, they wanted to burn him. They'd already kicked him out of his pastorate and his offices at St. Andrews. Then they cited him to appear before them on a charge of high treason. But they were cheated out of their victory, as he was already on his deathbed. When the commissioners came to him with the summons, he told them, You go back and tell them, that I have a summons already from a superior judge and judicatory. And ere your day come, I will be where few kings or great men ever go. And here's where I'm going with this. You might have wondered. When Rutherford lay there on his deathbed, a friend asked him, What think ye now of Christ? And Rutherford replied, Oh, that all my brethren in the land may know what a master I have served and what peace I have this day. I shall sleep in Christ, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with his likeness. This night shall close the door and put my anchor within the veil, and I shall go away in a sleep by five of the clock in the morning. Glory, glory to my Creator and my Redeemer forever. Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. True to his prediction, Rutherford did die in his sleep early on March 20th, 1661. His dying words were developed into a poetic tract called The Last Words of Samuel Rutherford by Anne Ross Cousin. And from that tract, a hymn was written. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight. But dayspring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean fullness, his mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. <laughs> 